This is In the Arena, the debates and lectures of Dr. William Lane Craig. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org. Well, it's a crisp and sunny autumn day here in Oxford, and I'm delighted to say that I'm welcomed by world-famous philosopher and apologist William Lane Craig. Bill, what brings you to this side of the pond? Jan and I are in Oxford and in London this week for the commemoration of the 50th anniversary of C.S. Lewis's death. I'll be speaking in Oxford at the C.S. Lewis Society, and then we'll be traveling into the city for a memorial service at Westminster Abbey where a plaque to Lewis will be unveiled in Westminster Abbey, and there will be then a conference talking about the significance of C.S. Lewis and his legacy and I'll be participating in a panel discussion. So we're thrilled to be here in your country for these Lewis festivities. Bill, we're, we're now 50 years uh, after the death of C.S. Lewis, and it seems that his, his legacy, his popularity, is more endearing, greater than at any point in his lifetime. How do you account for that? Well, I think it shows the importance of producing a body of published work that outlives the author. C.S. Lewis has had far more impact for the kingdom of God since his death than he ever did during his life. And I think it is because of the legacy that he left behind in writing. In our country, in the United States in particular, Lewis is tremendously popular and influential. And I think this has been augmented by the fact that the uh, media now have got a hold of C.S. Lewis's work and have produced, for example, films mm -hmm. of the Chronicles of Narnia, which have made him a household name even among people who don't share his Christian faith. So with the, the media uh, on Lewis's bandwagon, I think we can be sure that his popularity will continue. On a more personal note, Bill, do, do you remember the first C.S. Lewis book you ever read and the impact it had on you at the time? I first became acquainted with C.S. Lewis's work when I was in college. I had become a Christian my junior year in high school, and as a young Christian, I went off to Wheaton College. And Wheaton is a liberal arts Christian institution that has a strong emphasis upon the integration of faith and learning. And it was in college that I first began to read Lewis's work, and I think that the first one I read was probably mere Christianity. And that did not immediately spark my interest in Christian apologetics, I have to confess. That came later through reading the works of people like E.J. Carnell, who had a greater emphasis upon my thinking at that time. But certainly at Wheaton, I did become familiar with the uh, majority of Lewis's apologetic works. Mm. Now, Lewis's own spiritual journey is, is pretty well known. He described himself in this very proud city of Oxford as England's most reluctant convert on the night he felt battered and persuaded into believing in theism, that there was a personal God. Now, it was a couple of years, at least later, I know there's some disagreement as to precisely when Lewis became a believer in Jesus Christ. But Bill, you're famous for a, a particular cosmological argument that really seems to bring people to that belief in theism that Lewis found himself in joyless for mm. a couple of years. Um, what would you say to the, the, the criticism that really that is some way short 
of bringing people to f saving faith in Jesus. I prefer to look at it more optimistically and say it's halfway there okay. to bringing faith in Christ. And I think in Lewis's own life, you see this very logical progression, don't we? He didn't come immediately to faith in Jesus. Rather, first he was moved away from his naturalistic, uh, rationalistic view of the world as an atheist to believing there is some sort of a cosmic uh, intelligence or, or creator or source behind the universe whom he did not at that time know any kind of in any sort of personal way, but it, it brought him closer then to the rationality of accepting faith in Christ mm. as a second step. So Lewis is one of those persons who went through, I think, a very rational progression to faith in Christ. And the apologetic that I have adopted and built follows that same sort of logical pattern. You move from naturalism to theism, then from theism to Christian theism. And I think actually when you get to theism, you're more than halfway to Christianity. I think the grand canyon, so to speak, that needs to be leaped is from naturalism to theism. And then once you're at theism, I think it's just a short distance more mm. to arrive at Christian theism. Mm. Certainly when C.S. Lewis was struggling to get beyond theism to, to any place where there was joy and, and, and happiness in, in his beliefs. Um, he, he was very influenced by Chesterton, particularly the everlasting man, and this notion that Jesus had to be either mad, bad, or God. Hmm. And of course, Lewis then rehearses that argument in Mere Christianity. What do, what do you think of that? It's not popular amongst a number of current New Testament theologians. Well, I think the problem with it is that it leaves out one alternative that isn't mentioned. You could say Jesus was either a liar, he was a lunatic, or you don't need to go immediately to Lord. There's another L, legend, mm. that needs to be dealt with. Liar, lunatic, legend, or Lord. Could it be that the records we have of the life and teaching of Jesus are not historically reliable accounts. And the actual historic Jesus never made, perhaps, these radical personal claims that would be either blasphemous or insane. And that is the view of critical New Testament scholarship, at least up until recently, that the divine Christ of the Gospels is a legendary figure that was built by the accumulation of myth and Christian theology over the decades until the Gospels came to be written. Now Lewis in fact does address that other alternative, though not in the, in the work that you mentioned. Elsewhere he says, I have been studying myths and legends and folklore all my life. This is my area of specialization. And he said, when I read these Gospels, that is not the type of literature that these represent. These do represent historical records. And modern New Testament mm. scholarship, I think, has come to bear that out. In fact, mythology has come to be a discarded category in mm. New Testament um, criticism. Uh, although once popular back in the 1930s and 40s, this is no longer really a relevant category. What contemporary New Testament scholars have come to appreciate is that the proper background for understanding Jesus of Nazareth is not pagan mythology, but 
first century Palestinian Judaism. Mm. Jesus was a Jew, and it is against the backdrop of first century Palestinian Judaism that he and his claims need to be understood. And when you interpret the gospel get, Gospels against that background, then they emerge as very credible accounts of the life and teachings mm. of this man. And so I think that the Lewis trilemma can be put through once you eliminate that other alternative of legend. Mm. That's helpful. Although ironically, Tom Wright's beef with the trilemma is precisely because we don't take enough account of Jesus the Jew, but we're focusing too much on Jesus, the Son of God. Well, now that's an interesting point. I do think that in Judaism, to call oneself a son of God mm. isn't a claim to divinity. The Hebrew kings were regarded as sons of God. A special holy man or religious leader might be thought to be a son of God. But when you read the Gospels, it's clear that Jesus thought of himself as the unique son of God in a special way that set him apart from all of the rest of the disciples mm. and, and Jewish uh, holy men. Also, the more significant title, I think, for Jesus is the Son of Man. Now, the layperson might think, well, the, the Son of God is a title of divinity. The Son of Man is a title showing his humanity. In fact, almost the flip opposite is true. The Son of Man is drawn from the prophecy of Daniel in the Old Testament, where Daniel sees this divine human figure coming before God, and all authority, dominion, and judgment is given over to the Son of Man, uh, that all peoples on earth should worship and serve him. And it was that title that Jesus picked up and applied to himself. This is Jesus' favorite self-designation in the Gospels, the Son of Man. And I think it's there that we see most clearly Jesus' claim to divine authority and to put himself in, in God's place. Okay, so we've got uh, Lewis, a reluctant convert to theism, but then discovering and being surprised by the joy of faith in Jesus Christ. He then found himself as quite a fearsome apologist for Christian faith. But there are a number who believe he got his comeuppance in the famous 19... 48 Socratic debate with Elizabeth Anscombe, who challenged him on his defense of uh, his explanation for suffering and evil in the world. What do you make of the, the very popular idea that from that moment on, onwards, Lewis slightly lost his confidence in rational argument and then spent more of his time writing devotional and allegorical literature for children? I'm surprised, frankly, at that allegation. Lewis was already engaged in poetic and imaginative literature long before that engagement mm. at the Socratic Club. And moreover, I think that it shows the, uh, he was the paradigm of scholarship in appreciating the work of a critic, taking account of her criticisms, and then revising his work to meet the criticism. That's exactly what a good philosopher will do so far from showing some sort of retreat upon Lewis's part, I think this shows responsible engagement. He reformulated the argument in such a way as to meet the criticism. And I think posterity has borne out the fact that Lewis was right in the argument that he gave. You, you'll remember the argument, as I understand it, was basically that if our 
cognitive faculties are just the products of a blind evolutionary process, then we can't have any confidence in the deliverances of those faculties. We, we can't know that they are giving us the truth because our cognitive faculties don't select for truth, they select for survivability. And it's quite easy to imagine ways to survive without having true beliefs. But then if you can't trust your cognitive faculties, how can you trust the reasoning that has just led mm. you to that mm. conclusion or to the truth of naturalism? This argument, which Lewis grasped in a kind of rough and ready way, has received extended treatment by Alvin Plantinga, who is the greatest living Christian philosopher today, and who has refined uh, this argument in light of modern probability theory uh, and epistemology into a very rigorous argument that goes far beyond Lewis's own formulation, and I think is a very defensible and credible, credible argument. It, in planning his work, it's called the um, evolutionary argument against naturalism. Mm. And what Plantinga argues is that if naturalism is true, it can never be rational to affirm it because it has a built-in defeater, namely it undermines your rational confidence in your cognitive faculties so that you couldn't have any confidence that naturalism mm. was true to begin with. So it's a, a self-defeating position. It, it can never be rationally affirmed. Mm. No, that's helpful. Well, given that Lewis clearly did state and maintain a rational argument for belief in God and in Christian faith, he also did more than that. He, he says that the mere Christianity to which he wants people to, to at least come to, he says is like a hall out of which doors open into several rooms. If I can bring anyone into that hall, I shall have done what I attempted. But it is in the rooms, not in the hall, that there are fires and chairs and meals. The hall is a place to wait, and from which they can try the various doors, not a place to live in. Some critics of rational apologetics might say that apologists such as you get stuck in the hall. Oh. <laughs> and, and what Lewis wants to do is, yes, use that, that hall as a means of conveying people to, to the rooms with the, with the fires and the food. And in fact, as Blaise Pascal suggested uh, we should do in our apologetics, he so describes the human condition that, that, that good men will wish religion were, tr were true. Do, do you think we need to embrace more that sort of imaginative, emotional uh, appeal that, that, that Lewis gives us of news from a country we've not yet visited, the scent of a flower we've never seen? Well, let me unpack this image of the hall and the rooms, um, because I think this is a very powerful metaphor. Mm. I take it that the hall represents what Lewis called mere Christianity. Mm. That is to say, the fundamental cardinal doctrines or truths that all of the great confessions of Christendom acknowledge, whether Catholic, Protestant, or Orthodox. Mere Christianity would be those common truths that we all hold to. Those would be the hall. The doors or the rooms off of the hall would represent specific doctrinal uh, confessions, Presbyterianism, Methodism, Anglicanism, Catholicism, Orthodoxy. And what Lewis wants to say is, I don't want you to just rest in the hall, I want you to become 
Presbyterian, a Methodist, an Anglican. That's where your home will be. Mm -hmm. But what he wanted to do was simply to bring people first into the hallway mm -hmm. to defend that common core that all of the confessions of Christendom hold to. And then it will be up to the, the Christian convert then to find his mm. way into and to explore mm. these various rooms. And that is a model that I have adopted in our own personal ministry as well. What I have argued for is not the truth of any particular denominational or confessional system, but rather for those fundamental truths that Lewis called mere Christianity. And for me, that is focused upon the existence of God and God's self-revelation in Jesus as shown by his resurrection from the dead. Those, I think, are the twin pillars upon which Christianity rests. And if we can show that God exists and has decisively revealed himself in Jesus by raising him from the dead, then we will have brought people into the hall. They will be Christians if they believe and confess in, in those truths and come to know God in that way. But then, whether they become Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant or whatever beyond that is for others to, to teach and, and to uh, persuade them of. For me, I am with Lewis in saying my job is to bring them out of the, the world and into the hall of mere Christianity. Okay, well, I concede I've probably misappropriated that analogy for my question, but let me put it a slightly different way. Uh, Lewis did uh, by appealing to things like an inconsolable longing in mm -hmm. all of us, uh, make us actually want his mere Christianity, his definition of, 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 of Christian faith to be true. Um, and as Pascal said, make good men wish it were true yes. and then give them every reason to do so. Lewis did that not least by using rational apologetics, but also appealing to the imagination, appealing to the inconsolable longing we all have. Um, you know, because it is strange, isn't it, that if we're mere products of a material yes. universe, we don't feel at home. And it's that sense of where home is, how we feel about reality, how we have this inconsolable longing. What, what place do you think that has in I apologetics? Think, I think that all human beings, when they reflect seriously, do have this longing for the transcendent, mm. for that thing beyond. And if the Christian can evoke in a person that longing, that sense of the transcendent, then it will make his job of evangelism or persuasion all that much easier because the person will want it to be true, as you said. Mm. I think part of the great difficulty in reaching people in our secular society today is that so many of them just don't care. They don't even want to look at the evidence mm. or arguments because they don't care. So that the real obstacle is not atheism, it's what some people have called apatheism, uh, namely just apathy, they don't care. And that's where I think Lewis's imaginative work and the appeal to the transcendent, the longing for significance, really does play a role because then it will set the person on the quest and will make them open to the evidence and argument about which they might otherwise be apathetic. I've tried to do this in my work by arguing that apart from the existence of God, life is ultimately absurd. That is to say, it's without ultimate meaning, without ultimate value, without ultimate purpose. And here Pascal's work 
as well as the work of French existentialists, has been for me very useful mm. in trying to shake people out of their apathy and to get them to think about these deeper questions of the meaning and the significance of my life, which any human being in the deepest parts of his existence ought to long for. Mm. Bill, we have time for just one more question. It's 50 years, of course, since the death of C.S. Lewis, it, coming up exactly in two, two days' time. As you reflect back on your reading of Lewis's work, and no doubt it's, it's formed part of your thinking, what do you most appreciate about him? Well, I think two things that I would mention, Richard. One would be to recall that Lewis was living during and writing during the height of logical positivism in Oxford. Mm, These were mm. the days of A.J. Eyre and Antony Flew and the verification principle of meaning which said that religious language and discourse is meaningless, just makes no sense at all, there's no cognitive content. And Lewis refused to be bullied by these verificationists and positivists. He argued, giving good arguments for the existence of God. And the uh, verdict of history now has been that logical positivism and verificationism is untenable, it won't work, it is now passe and obsolete. And I think that the arguments of Lewis, by contrast, have an enduring value. The other thing that I would mention is that Lewis saw the advent of postmodernism during his lifetime. And when he moved to Cambridge, uh, in his inaugural address there, he called himself a dinosaur. Uh, Lewis was a pre-modern man. Uh, he was neither a modernist, but neither was he a postmodernist. He believed in the objectivity of truth, of rationality, of logic, of value, and he refused to go along with the currents in literary studies that deny objectivity and reason and rationality. And so I appreciate so much the way Lewis was able to resist the positivism uh, in his early days at Oxford, as well as then the postmodernism and its siren song to go into irrationality and relativity and pluralism. And I think there Lewis is situated exactly right. Bill, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Richard. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org.